This is a GRDC podcast. Cover cropping as a tool to instill more sustainability into Australia's cropping system is being talked about more and more. One substantial GRDC investment involves trialling a range of cover cropping measures across the southern region. In 2019, riverine soil scientist Cassandra Schaaf travelled to North America to see if what they are doing there could be easily transferable to Australian systems. G'day, I'm Chris Brown. Cassie was able to travel when she received a GRDC Recognising and Rewarding Excellence Award for her outstanding contribution to the grains industry in the southern region. I was keen to find out more about Cassie's trip, so we caught up near Yarrawonga on the Murray. Now, we actually started off talking about some other interesting developments in Canada, where the industry there is making some big strides in improving pea protein. That was really interesting, Chris. Before I left, I was keen to learn more about their pulse agronomy and how they were marketing their pulses to ensure sustainable supply and, and demand. And they talked a lot about how they were adding value to their pulses through fractionating or extracting out what's called pea protein, which is the pre- protein component of the pea seed or the yep. grain. So they take the protein out? They do. Yep. Through a, a manufacturing process, they're able to extract out a powder or a flour okay, yeah, called pea protein. So well down the, uh, the line. Absolutely. So it's something that can be used in baking and cooking and substitution into other foods that normally have a protein source that comes from somewhere else. So this is really interesting because in Canada they recognise that if they can maintain a stable domestic demand for this pea protein, that will ensure that their pulses that they're growing through their agriculture systems will always have a place to go and always be a demand to sell them, which also then means that they're maintaining the sustainability within their agricultural systems. They are very much a pulse dominant. Absolutely. Yeah, pulses play a really big role in the growing systems, particularly in the area that I visited, which was in the region of Saskatchewan, and the town that I spent most of my time in was at Saskatoon. So they're really much the hub of development of new varieties of pulses and suiting them for their climate and their growing systems. So the key thing that was really interesting was there was a whole of scale approach. So not just breeding a pulses for best suiting to their farming systems, but then how they can use the products from those pulses domestically to create better foods and better quality foods within the country. So there's a massive investment from the National Research Council of Canada around working with companies to commercialise new products and developing and refining existing products to create a need or a niche for this pea protein to go into, which is really cool. Are we talking about field peas or chickpeas? Yep, yep. But this pea protein, as I understand it, can come from any of the pulses that are grown. I think it's just generically called pea protein. Right. Um, And I think field peas tend to be the dominant thing that they've been using to date. But as I understand it, this protein could come from any of the pulses. Yeah. So where are they up to with it? Is it way down the track? Absolutely. They've been developing new breads that have pea flour in them, which means that they're a higher protein bread. We're talking bagels, we're talking cakes, working with some of the really big suppliers to create better, higher protein foods, and also developing new products with new companies and commercial startups to create a diversity of requirement for this protein across the food supply, which is a great kind of paddock to plate approach. Is that also driving research into better pea varieties that suit that purpose? Yeah, so certainly it's it seems a real circular approach. So you're getting more 
better varieties with a good quality protein, which then have a better supply mm. into the food chain. And what's also interesting is they're going even outside the food sector with this protein and looking at other avenues for using it as a functional component. And as you say, it was interesting because they're basically, I suppose, they're trying to capitalise on their fairly large market there and not so much reliance on overseas markets. Yeah, so they're recognising the volatility of depending on overseas export for their agricultural products. So if they can build more domestic requirement, then that creates more stability in prices and supply and ensuring that farmers will continue to keep growing these crops because not only are they a good component as part of their farming system, but they're, they're guaranteed that they'll have a market when they come to sell them. Yeah, they're fortunate they've got the critical mass of people, haven't they? That's right. Yeah. And they've got a really good regional investment and coherence in the space. Let's move down to the US then. Where did you go there? I went to two places. <clears throat> I spent some time in Vermont, which is in the north of America, just underneath Canada, and then across to Colorado, where mm -hmm. I spent a few days at the university there. Okay, and they're both fairly well-established grain areas, are they? Or? Well, they are, Colorado more so than Vermont. The reason why I spent some time in Vermont was to look at their cover cropping work that they were doing. They were, had been quite innovative in developing new approaches to how they look at cover crops. And then across to Colorado, which is has more similarity to us in terms of being a very water-constrained system. Well, let's talk about cover cropping. As you say, it's very well established there. Just describe their system. What do they do? So in their systems, the ones that I saw were very much corn and soybean dominant. And with their corn crops, most of those crops were taken for feed, animal feed, particularly for dairy, with their dairy herds being completely enclosed in sheds all year. So they grow the corn, then they cut off at near ground level and export it to where the herd is. But very basic systems, either continuous corn mm. or corn-soybean rotation, with no residue left after harvest and no protection or other way to kind of secure the soil after harvest and before planting. What's the time length between harvest and planting there? In Vermont, I was there in July and they said they had another two months before they had to worry about snow and then they could only start planting back again in May. So very short mm. time frames and very deep snow. But before I went there, I was thinking about cover cropping in the Australian context that I understood it, which is just starting to become of interest to growers in southeastern Australia. We're looking at growing something after harvest to maintain green cover on the ground until mm. the next grain crop is sown. So that's what I was thinking that their systems were like. And I was struggling to understand how that worked. Going over there, discovered that they actually plant their cover crops in between the rows of their cash crop or their corn or soybeans when the, the crop's at kind of mid-growth stage so that when they cut the corn off at ground level to export for the dairy, there's a, a green cover over the ground okay. that then protects it under their snow periods. That's a really big thing for them because they have a lot of issues with nutrient transfer to waterways over the snow or during the snow melt period and the exposed soil is subject to a lot of erosion issues. So the use of cover cropping in those systems has a really nice environmental value and the lack of water restraint or constraint in their system, as in they don't have any constraints, means that they can continue to utilise that water all year. So that's really nice. Yeah, is that the only reason they use cover crops is to stop that sort of leaching of nutrients? It's the key reason. The three key reasons they're looking for is to have a ground cover, so mm. protection on the ground, 
they're looking to use nutrients and they're looking to increase a bit of diversity into their systems because they're, they're reasonably sterile with their corn soybeans, particularly around Vermont. Down in Colorado, there was more use of, of cereals and that's where there was a lot more wheat grown. But in a lot of instances, wheat was the rotational crop for corn or mm. soybeans. It was considered a bit of a novelty when you had three crops in the system rather yeah. than two. So how did you come away thinking, is it possible to transfer that system into Australia? I really struggled a lot to try and identify the connections between the two systems, knowing that where we would be looking to place cover crops in southeastern Australia is during hot, dry conditions over summer where we may not get any rain, we get very hot and we may not be able to grow anything. So I just really struggled with that. And seeing how the American system looks and behaves and then trying to translate that directly to Australia just didn't really connect well with me. So what I'm really keen to understand is how we can take what they've learnt in America and to see if we can create our own story around if and when the use of cover crops can add value to our systems in a, in a way that is distinctly relevant to us. What's driving uh, cover crops in Australia? Is it the erosion issue, wind erosion and that sort of thing over summer? It's not really an issue for us as such in areas that we retain our stubbles. Hmm. And even when we don't retain stubbles, we still have, if, if stubbles are burnt, they're only burnt just prior to sowing. So we've hmm. still got that summer protection. So I can see the key value in Australian systems would be to be maintaining a, some green cover which may help in terms of continuing microbial activity over summer, yep. continuing nutrient cycling activities, and potentially keeping the ground a little bit cooler. There's research to show that, that green cover will have an insulating cooling effect. There's a few things that could add value, in addition to increasing some biological diversity into the system through bringing in crops that we normally wouldn't be growing because of a, a cash or a, as a financial crop. So I can see that there's enough value there that it could work and I appreciate that there's farmers who are using cover crops now and are really happy with what they're doing. But I think in terms of translating something that is more widely applicable through particularly the, the riverine plains into Victoria, into South Australia, we need to look at what we want to achieve through that system and potentially coming up with our own set of potentially low biomass, low water usage plants that we might be looking at using in that system. And through the soil science community, we've had a lot of discussion around how cover crops could fit and if and how and, and should they. And so there's field trials and glasshouse trials in place at the moment that are looking to tease out some of those values and really looking forward to be able to quantify over the next few years what added value there is to having a summer cover crop compared to best practice of maintaining full stubble retention over summer. Soil scientist Cassandra Schaaf, who recently travelled to the US and Canada, enabled by the receipt of a GRDC Recognising and Rewarding Excellence Award. My name is Chris Brown. Mm -hmm.